This Ornstein and Chapman podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Uh, Well, hello. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we will bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda a setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across the Athletic. Coming up today we're basically going to look at football's response to the coronavirus and the mechanics behind the pivotal meetings that are coming up at both UEFA and the Premier League this week. We'll also though uh, talk about details of a possible new deal for Paul Pogba and also why police were called to the boardroom at Charlton Athletic and just by listening to us you can get a 40% discount on subscription by going to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. David, obviously a difficult time for everyone at the moment. Um, so many people and probably a lot of people listening to us rely on sport for their livelihood as well. Um, you've also been talking to lots of people within the football community over the last few days. What is there? I mean, is there a general reaction? Is there a general feeling or is it very much like society and, and, and very differing opinions. Yeah, so the general feeling, Mark, is one that we probably all share. Nobody that I've spoken to within football has any idea what's happening. There's complete confusion because it's uncharted territory. It's unprecedented circumstances. Across the board, just a lack of clarity. So I've been speaking to some players who uh, there's a bit of novelty around it. There's a bit of fear. There's a bit of unknown. Their priority at this sort of moment in time uh, in such a immediate and raw situation is their own health, their family's health, the health of those around them, but also their um, fitness situation. Most of them from those that I've spoken to are planning for the resumption on the 3rd, the 4th of April. Um, It doesn't matter that it's not realistic. It just gives them a target to try and keep some level of fitness for. There are some who haven't got fitness equipment at their own homes. Some of them rent. um, Some of them are in apartments uh, that don't uh, have... I don't know, weights or exercise bikes or whatever. And some of them are in self-isolation, so they can't leave those apartments to go down to, say, a communal gym, which was the case with one player I spoke to. Um, Others are uh, more beneficial. They have uh, their own equipment at home, even their own swimming pools, their own personal trainers. And it's really interesting that one of England's leading clubs uh, has been sending a fleet of vehicles round Uh, dropping off equipment at their players' houses, exercise bikes, uh, whatever they need really, weights. Um, And then certain players who are in rehab have been uh, having FaceTime sessions uh, on the phone with their physios who are running them through, you know, each set, each rep, uh, and that sort of thing. So they're keeping in in a reasonable shape. There is concern among players that those who are training as normal, like uh, Tottenham, for example, Manchester United, and a few others, 
if the resumption does come soon, then those players are going to be in top condition, perhaps even in better situations with the likes of Harry Kane and Son Hyun Min possibly coming back to fitness. Whereas players at clubs like Chelsea and Arsenal in self-isolation for 14 days, they're potentially in a far uh, less advantageous physical state. Then you go on to the executives. They're all pinning their hopes on Tuesday's UEFA meeting. They hope that they'll bring that will bring significant clarity over the club game and over Euro 2020. Agents, it's all over the place. Negotiations have pretty much stopped over transfers. They were reaching critical points in many of those potential deals. So they're going to have to pick those up at a later point. But will the terms have changed? Will they have a stronger hand? Will the situation be weaker for the player? So much unknown. A lot of concern over players whose contracts expire on the 30th of June and what's going to happen with them. And if suddenly an a-, a club comes and says, we want to give you a short-term extension, many of those agents are going to turn around and say, well, you didn't want us previously. You didn't want a new deal with us running up to the 30th of of June and now suddenly you do and they'll they'll try and get longer or more money or you know all sorts of things uh, around that so really there's pandemonium but this is all relative it's not nearly as serious as uh, people's lives and that should be the overwhelming priority in this it's going to be very important over the course of, of this podcast and any other broadcasts and podcasts over the the coming week and and longer than that of course to to try and deal with with facts rather than speculation we, we can bring Matt Slater the Athletics Football News and Investigations reporter into the conversation Matt we, we know that UEFA will have a meeting on Tuesday to discuss European football's response to COVID-19. First of all, all I keep hearing is UEFA are going to have a meeting. Who? What I don't know is what that means in terms mm. of who is there. This is so large, so complicated. We're learning so much, I think, now about how joined up the football industry is that uh, there are endless knock-on effects and implications. So the invite went out last week it is to UEFA's 55 member associations, so the FAs from the, the 55 European countries that are, that are members of, U, of UEFA, uh, what they refer to as their stakeholders. So uh, the European Club Association, which is the, the umbrella group that represents uh, the wealthier clubs, there's about 250 of them across Europe. Um, European Leagues, which again is an umbrella organisation which I think represents best part of 40 leagues, domestic leagues across Europe. Uh, Pro. The, um, the Global Players Union, so that people like the PFA, the Scottish PFA, can all feed into FIFA Pro. And then I think UEFA itself, Exco, their Exco, their, um, their, 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 their board. So I think there's going to be three meetings. Uh, and I think, as you've already framed it in your question, it is there's one thing on the agenda. It's, it's the coronavirus. And that, and that means trying to find a solution that works for all the domestic leagues, all the clubs, but, but equally UEFA as well. UEFA has, has two club competitions to finish. And then, of course, the, the, you know, the huge elephant in the room is Euro 2020 itself. And I think if there is going to be an outcome from the meeting, I think it is just the confirmation that, 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 that everyone has, has pretty much known for the last week that Euro 2020 has to move from this summer. Just before I come on to that, and as I say to you, whenever we have you on, if I ask you a question that you can't answer, just say, <laughs> I, I don't know, because things just... Cro- when you then sort of give me an indication who, for who's there at that meeting, then I start to think, OK, right, who would represent the interests of, say, Aston Villa in this meeting? 
Who would, and I've picked a club at random from the Premier League, but one that isn't mm. part of, I'm assuming, the big European powerhouses, uh, you know, year in, year out. Who would speak for Swindon Town? At this meeting, would that be would that be the FA on both counts? Well, it's it's that's a, that's a really good question. So I think Aston Villa, I'd have to check. I, I'm fairly sure they're a member of the European Club Association. A club like Aston Villa would, I'm going to say, have you know would, would have a voice, a small voice. Let's be honest, through the European Club Association, sure. would have a bigger voice through our FA. But of course, I think the key thing about the clubs like Villa, Premier League clubs, is they are at the moment. Uh, working together and would have representation through the European leagues as well. Now, a club like Swindon, you're right, I think would be hoping that the European leagues, again, which which the European the EFL is a, is a key member of, uh, of the European leagues, would have representation there. Its voice would be heard and equally the FA. So, so there are, I think, I think there are enough people under that tent to speak for most constituencies. But the, the problem is everything is, is up for debate. Everything's up for question. Everybody has their own little agenda. Everybody has their own problem. And it becomes, it's going to become very, very hard in one meeting or even a series of, even a week of meetings to, to hear all of those, to weigh all of those properly. Matt, one of the sad inevitabilities about this that I've found is the contrasting interests and egos and priorities I do understand them but it's just not pleasant to see them being voiced so publicly and even behind the scenes I've spoken to people at clubs where they just don't even want to talk about the football they are being so responsible and cautious and others where they are desperate to get on and train and play matches. They've had no cases or um, symptoms. They're in good positions in the league table and they want to get things sorted. It's not fair for me to name names. When this uh, UEFA meeting goes ahead, who will ultimately make the call on what happens? Well, that's a really good question. And from a UEFA point of view, it would be their ex-co. Um, 18, 18 members, you know, with, 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 you know, David Gill's there, the former Man United treasurer. Um, you know, there's some other familiar names, guys like um, Ivan Gazidis, ex-Arsenal. Um, and it's led by Alexander Shefferin, the president. You know, there is, there, there is a broad church that, that represents s- small nations within Europe, medium nations, large nations, uh, there are some big clubs represented there, guys like Andrea Agnelli from Juve, uh, ECA have two members, and, and, and PSG's boss, Nasser Al-Khalifi. And then there are, there are, there are people that represent the domestic leagues, and I, and I would include the, you know, the EFL, the Scottish League. People are very wary about going on the record. They don't want to seem to be the, the, the sort of obnoxious, self-interested people right now. We have, of course, over the weekend seen someone put their head above the parapet, who we may well discuss. I don't know if we'll discuss her right now. Um, you know, Karen Brady did did sort of voice the let's let's declare the season null and void because that is one of the one of the solutions. That is one of the ways out of this legally. It also happens to be a way that suits her football club really, really nicely. And this is the problem. This is where we're at. So many conflicting agendas. Will their decision be final, the UEFA Exco, or are we going to open a can of worms and see legal challenges and and some very disgruntled clubs, or will that decision be respected? Good question, and I, and I think this is why UEFA, who are a collegiate bunch, you know, when things are going well, they are, and Seferin, 
whilst he's not new new, he's still in his, his first term. He's still, I wouldn't say, he's not like a set blatter type figure that has loads of uh, political capital and bestrides his, his organisation. I suspect there'll be a lot more talking. UEFA are not going to send diktats out about this is where it's going to be. We've sorted it all out, guys. Don't you worry. England, here's your solution. Sweden, here's yours. Russia, you do this. No, there's going to be a lot more talking. There's going to be, you know, and FIFA haven't really got involved yet. Any solution that involves our domestic leagues and involves what happens with the Euros, moving, going to the winter, going to next summer, has massive knock-on effects, not only for FIFA, but for other confederations. There, there are, there's weeks more of this, weeks and months more of this. What we're going to get on Tuesday, I think, is, is, is a, a, an admission, guys, Euro 2020 is moving. Here are some of the things we can do around finishing our club competitions. Here are some of the things that you should be doing in your domestic leagues. Here's some of the flexibility that we have right now in our calendar. But this is all contingent on the next 6, 10, 14 weeks going in a way that we can kind of imagine and predict a model. They will have this meeting and then come to a decision. Or, or, or is there a voting process here? Because when it comes to the Premier League meeting on Thursday, if they if they were going to make decisions, then there are votes on that. Just, just as far as UEFA is concerned, before we come on to the Premier League, UEFA, they, they as an exec will hear all the different um, points of view, ideas, requests, and then if they were going to decide anything, I'm not going to ask you what, what they might decide, then they as an exec can take that decision. I think, but, but this goes back to my, my last answer, that they are going to be really careful about how far they go and what they decide sure. on. And I, and I think if there is a decision, it will be Euro 2020 moves. Yeah, but that, so what I'm saying is they, they could say, right, we, we will yes. move your... Yeah, what on, I'm on saying is one. they don't have to have the, the conference, the meetings, everybody who's participating in the video call take a vote on Euro 2020. No, because that right. is the blockage. That's the obvious blockage right now. The, yes. the, the, if we're going to do anything other than declare the season null and void, with all of the things, the bad things that flow from that, the rows, the, 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 the cries of unfairness, the, 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 the decades of resentment that will flow from that. The only way to give us any options going forward is Euro 2020 move. And that is within UEFA's gift. And they have been talking about that, I know for a fact, for 10 days at least. If we move on to the Premier League, anything that they decide, and again... Let, everybody knows the the different options and I think as you alluded to this isn't going to be unraveled this week this is going to take 6, 10, 14 weeks whatever it may be but anything that is decided within a Premier League meeting has to be voted on and ratified by a two-thirds majority yes? Yeah correct and this is where self-interest comes into play I'm not really expecting much this week I really I'm not I, I think we've got a lot more of this. You know, this is this is this is the new football. And, and, about- actually, and actually, as we've kind of said, there's no need for them to rush at the moment. Bar, bar the fact that there will be lots of people, as we've mentioned at the start, livelihoods on the line here. Huge numbers of casual staff who work match days at not only Premier League clubs but EFL clubs, and I know Brighton are one if maybe not the only one, as far as I can tell at the moment, who are saying they're going to continue to pay their matchday staff through all of this. Um, 
those people will want clarity actually at some point, I'm, I'm guessing, but they've already given themselves till the beginning of April to think about things and talk things through. And really, given the health situation of the nation, there is no need to rush. Absolutely. And that is, I think, the only sensible thing to do right now. That, um, that sort of two and a bit week window they gave themselves really was breathing space. They, they got ahead of the government advice there, I think, for obvious reasons, Michael Teta and et cetera. They, they felt they had to do something. And I think it was the right call. I think we can all agree on that. I also strongly believe that we're, we're talking about May, really, for, for, for any kind of resumption. The, the, key, the key one for me is, do they feel they can coherently finish this season with all the potential impacts on competitive integrity. The athletic writers at the moment are uh, are sharing their favourite stories and are making them available for, for non-subscribers to read. So if you are a non-subscriber who regularly listens to this pod, all the athletic writers have got these stories up there for you. What's yours, Matt? Uh, my one is about being an away fan in Europe, uh, and it involves aggressive dogs, police in riot gear, water cannons, barbed wire, uh, cups of urine, the good old days. <laughs> Real football. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and just to clarify, that's from being an away fan, not being yeah, a journalist. Yeah. That's, not, that's, not, that's not daily. That's not, yeah, that's, that's, not, not yeah, that's not that's not. Yeah, that's, that's, that's me travelling around uh, pre-pandemic Europe. Um, <laughs> Matt, thank you. We will, uh, to, listen, we're going to talk next away, week. Mate. We might talk later this week, probably, well, but uh, yeah. for now, thank you. Well, Paul Pogba is expected to return to training with Manchester United this week. There's also talk of him now signing a new contract. Let's talk to the Athletics United writer, uh, Laurie Whitwell. Where's this come from? Yeah, it's a change of um, sort of mood, I suppose, since the last time we heard. Uh, <laughs> and then some, that's an understatement <laughs> if ever there was one. I mean, it's always been this way with, with me and Arola, whenever he's spoken, there's always it's, he has dangled this carrot of a new contract. I mean, even last summer there was talk of uh, initial approach from United, sort of looking at whether they could do something. Um, that was kind of parked when I think the, the response was very much a no thank you. Um, but then even when he sort of went on his latest round of interviews in February after sort of Solskjaer had, had a bit of a, a pop at him, following the Haaland stuff um, uh, you know Raula did, did mention in one of those interviews that, that you know could even sign a new contract I mean United sort of judged all that um, publicity at the time uh, you know t- talk, touched they took it very lightly, you know, they, they know that Minarola can say different things to different people and, and who knows exactly what's going on. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't know, just speaking to certain people around the squad, um, they obviously see what's happening with the run, with the success that is, you know, is putting together at the moment and they feel like maybe Pogba is, is more open to um, to staying. Listen, obviously there's various different factors in that, um, you know, are there suitors out there that would pay the money, um, given everything that's going on with coronavirus you know when will he be back playing and would a club you know really put across that kind of um, finance for somebody who hasn't played since December um, uh, and then also yeah it would does he now see that the the, the success of Bruno Fernandes and think actually I'll have a bit of that I quite like the idea of, of sort of riffing off him in, in midfield um, you know certainly people have, have looked at the potential midfield of you know Bruno Pogba and perhaps McTominay or Fred um, as, as a quite a, a mouthwatering one so um, yeah there's it's, it just seems like a little bit of a, of a change I mean obviously he's, he's back in he's, he's been back in training at Carrington um, so he's actually been a presence more 
than he, he had been when he was out injured and getting rehab, you know, in the USA or wherever. So um, I think that's sort of all contributing to this sort of idea that perhaps he's it's not as certain as it, it seemed that he was going to be off in the summer. Laurie, interesting that while United were doing quite poorly by their expectations, all the noise was Pogba leaving. Mm-hmm. As soon as they start to pick up and look like they're going in a pretty positive direction and there's less talk around him, suddenly it's like, could he stay? Could he sign a new contract? And he seems to have been pretty canny in all of this because we've not heard a single word from him, just people around him and the club. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, clearly there's there's that is a is a very um so sensible thing to think really when you're looking at Pogba. I suppose he would always say, you know, I I only ever wanted to win trophies at United. That's basically been Raiola's strand to things that, you know, he he thought he was coming back to United to to win the Premier League, you know, compete for the Champions League. And if he actually sees that that is the case um now with United that they could potentially, you know, one day in the future um do those things, then he, he's probably more willing. You know, the cynic might say, well actually you've been out for so long you know you haven't played the club has actually moved on and now they are in a strong position because he isn't the be all and end all when, when he came back uh, in December um, after his three month spell out um, it was basically essential that he, he you know, was in the squad for Watford after two training sessions and then he was on the pitch uh, in the second half because United were playing poorly and needed um, sort of a bit of invigoration and, and he did provide that in that sort of cameo that he had whereas now um, you know Solskjaer has, has managed to shape the squad in a way that he is more you know that he likes um, in, a, in a better way really and um, the players are playing more for him in a collective so you've got Harry Maguire is probably more important now Bruno you know is, is, is more important um, you've got Anthony Marshall playing well so you've got different figures there that actually could you know, lead United on and, and Pogba isn't necessarily as essential as he once was is there any way United will have um, put this out there that he might sign a new contract to flush out interest Oh, I don't know, actually. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, um, the, the original story was from Sammy Mottbell in the Daily Mail. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm aware, you know, his, his contacts are perhaps elsewhere. I think he's just a really good reporter that gets good stories often. So he, he'll speak to people and that'll be, you know, well sourced. Um, from my point of view, um, I haven't really checked this with United to, to any great degree other than just to sort of say, you know, are United back in training on Tuesday and, and is Pogba around the, the setup? So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's all correct. So, um, well, they're definitely back in training on Tuesday. It's 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 up to Solskjaer really. I think whether he, he integrates him right from the get go, um, or whether he sort of takes a little bit more time. But he's base he's basically back in in full training really. So, um, so yeah. But I don't think it's a, a tactic by United to, to particularly flush out interest. I, I don't think they're that fussed about it at the moment I think they're, they're kind of happy to go along with what's happening you know, on the pitch and, and they'll come to it sort of as and when I mean obviously it's up to Raiola really to to bring a club to the table um, with a with a bid that they deem acceptable. Could we take a rare positive slant to it and say that United with a fit and informed Pogba added to their other sort of um, what would appear pretty impressive resources of late anyway could be a, a, a decent proposition? It'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Really, you know, focus, poor Pogba. I mean, you look at the stats from um, last season and even even this season. You know, he's still up there for chances created. I think um, like fourteen or fifteen, uh, and you know that's probably fourth or fifth in the list of, of all players for United, which is crazy considering he's only played eight games. You know, in total. So it clearly, if he's actually on it and if he's fully focused and committed, it would be an awesome prospect uh, when you look at what he could join. I suppose it's just that massive if you know if he really is switched on if he 
really is committed and obviously he's shown at various points that that can flip from you know absolute commitment to you know sort of a kind of laissez-faire attitude so um, yeah I mean obviously we'll have to wait and see he's a bit bit a bit rusty in training apparently um, you know to, to begin with but he's been doing a lot of work been putting quite hard grafting um, Michael Carrick's been doing some ball work with him um, specific tactical stuff I think so um, yeah he's, he's definitely sort of focused in more recent weeks so I guess we'll have to just wait and see how he comes back Obviously, talking with Matt Slater earlier about various possibilities going forward, um, and and this could be a long, long way off when games might even be played behind closed doors. You were at United Europa League game last week that did take place behind closed doors. What was that like? Yeah, really weird. Um, I mean, you know, you're sort of thinking it's the last 16 um, Europa League tie. It's the biggest game in in Las Calinces history, and there was absolutely nobody there. Um, there was about 150 family and friends from um, Lask in front of us in the press box who w- were giving it a, a sort of decent go at giving a bit of atmosphere to it. And there was some United fans that had sort of um, stood up by uh, the sort of hill that was overlooking the stadium that you couldn't really see into the ground too much. But they, they, I think they had a slither of a view, and, and they were giving it a few songs. Uh, the the team chef actually started up a United We Love You chant which uh, Solskjaer <laughs> mentioned uh, in his post-match press conference that he was happy with uh, and there was a fan channel that, that sung a couple of songs as well um, so uh, but yeah it was it was a kind of weird uh, sort of situation I mean I sort of took it as a bit of an opportunity to try and earwig on what the players were saying to each yeah. other uh, you know like are they of, vocal are they vocal well weirdly I wondered if they I think they've been told sort of just watch the language a little bit because clearly they could get picked up um, because we, you know, when Odinogalo scored, for example, you know there wasn't really that much cheering. It was it was odd, um, you know. Uh, and each goal, there was you know sort of quite a. And I don't know if it was the man man of the game that they expected to sort of win and, and and go through, but there wasn't the kind of absolute outrageous joy that obviously we saw with Scott McTominay. And I wonder what that would have sounded like without the fans, you know, going crazy in the stands. But um, it, it, I don't know. It all felt a bit muted. I mean, you certainly heard um, some uh, aspects that came out. Um, you know, Maguire is, is very vocal. Um, you know, he was he was constantly sort of talking to people, getting them in, into position, appealing for stuff. Um, very much uh, giving Luke Shaw instruction on, on the left of him, sort of to go forward to drive. Uh, in that you know Sheffield accent that he's got, you could clearly detect that and <laughs> and, and Solskjaer, Solskjaer found it quite uh, useful it's you know in a managerial sense to sort of there was one bit where he uh, sort of nodded to Mason Greenwood to sort of go and make a run um, and I guess you know perhaps in uh, sort of, I think he sort of shouted to him a little bit before that and I guess you know if a crowd had been in that position then you know he wouldn't have been able to do that as easily so um, yeah interesting sort of uh, experiment not one that I'd like to repeat but I, I do fear you know from speaking to people that you know that might be the only way that they managed to finish this season and avoid you know the financial oblivion that is not fulfilling fixtures you know in terms of broadcast contracts uh, you wrote on uh, as part of David's column today, just moving away from Manchester United, that uh, England's friendlies being cancelled, maybe the postponement of the Euros as well, would affect some players who could have been in, in this squad and maybe we haven't seen before, one in particular. Yeah, Ben Mee um, was a name that got brought to my attention. Um, and I guess, he's, I think he's been sort of mentioned before a little bit with England, but um, I guess never really too seriously. And listen, maybe Southgate was just sort of doing a bit of due diligence and kind of wondering whether he would be be good enough. But yes, it certainly made some discreet inquiries about him. Um, he's obviously been at Turf Moor quite frequently, given, um, you know, he's got Nick Pope there and, and Dwight McNeil, I think, has also been somebody that's caught his eye. But yeah, Ben Mee was, was an interesting one. I mean, he's played every single 
single minute for Burnley. Um, he's up there for um, aerial clearances and he's the captain of Burnley, so obviously he brings a, a leadership to him. He's 30 now, though, so you sort of wonder, is is a player like that, would he have been a sort of a bit of a wild card in the March friendlies just to see what he what he was like? Because you look at the defensive options that he's got and Harry Maguire's really the only guaranteed one. Obviously, Joe Gomez, you'd probably say, would be alongside him, but the, the, you know what's happened to John Stones is sort of made his place less certain and also Fikayo Tamori, who was in the squad in November, um, he, he's sort of a, a little bit out of the picture at Chelsea. So clearly it was an area of, the, of, the, of his team that he thought he, he might have a look at some new place, some new faces and, and Ben Mee was, was, I guess, in the contention. But yeah, I guess we'll never know until international start again. I know obviously people are talking about Euros being postponed and that does seem the likeliest course of, uh, you know, of action, but, um, which, which would be quite sad, I think, for, for people like that in that position. Uh, and let's end, as we did with Matt, with uh, your favourite piece that The Athletic have unlocked. What's yours about? Oh, you're going to hate this. It, this is totally ripe for some cynicism, chappers. It's um, Manchester United going 4,000 games in a row with a, a youth team player in, in the squad, um, so, which was an incredible stat. Um, uh, so, yeah, obviously I spoke to... Uh, Ryan Giggs, Nicky Book, Clayton Blackmore, like a load of people that basically were talking me through their debuts and what it meant to come through the academy. Some interesting little stories. Josh Harrop, for one, you know, had one match for United on his debut, scored. But passed I from tell you what, he looked, he, looked, he looked good in that game, did Josh Harrop. That was against Crystal Palace at Old yeah, Trafford. Yeah. He looked good in that game. And before you knew it, he was on his way to Preston. Well, that was so in, in the piece, I talk about how he already was thinking he was on his way out before that game. And then that game was a perfect sort of platform for him. And he had a sort of two-week period where he was sort of debating whether to sign a new contract from United or whether to, you know, leave and go on a free to Preston or, or other clubs that he had an opportunity to. And in the end, he sort of felt that the contract wasn't really a shine from United that they wanted him. So he, so he left. But yeah, he, he leaves having one game, one goal, you know, a great little record, 100% record really. So yeah, but with this little tales like that throughout the piece, I really enjoyed writing it and, and, um, and speaking to people. Good. I'm, I'll re- I'm not going to be cynical about that I like that that's a, that's <laughs> okay, a great, great status for me to be proud of if you'd <laughs> done Ed yeah if you'd done Ed Woodward my top 10 United games I might have you know cancelled give me an idea for a piece give me an idea for a piece whilst we're having this <laughs> now one story that may have slipped under the radar for a lot of you over the last week involves Charlton Athletic following a major disagreement between Chairman Matt Southall and Majority Shareholder Tanu Nima Jack Pitbrook has written about this for The Athletic I mean if you just go back a couple of months ago Jack Charlton fans were, were full of optimism they got rid of the nightmare of their previous regime and now it looks like problems again Yes, yeah, so obviously Roland du Châtelet was in charge at Charlton for six years. He was hated by the fans. There were years of protests against him. And then when he decided to sell to East Street Investments over Christmas, there was a real sense of Charlton of a fresh start and that the, the bad days were over, really. So it's amazing to see literally only two and a bit months since the takeover was completed, it all unravelling like this in a week of incredible kind of open warfare really between the two sides of the East Street Investments team, which on the one hand is Tanu Nima, who's the, basically an investor from Abu Dhabi, who's brought the money for the Charlton takeover, and Matt Southall, who he recruited as his front man, who was effectively running the club as executive chairman. So now we're told that the police were called to the valley last week. So how has it got to this point? What has gone on in this two months? Nima was angry with how Southall was running the club, namely how much money Southall was paying himself and the incredible package that Southall had put together. So Southall 
Southall was on a salary of about 200 grand, which is roughly in line with the guidelines for someone running a championship club. He had uh, a, a brand new white Range Rover lease, which costs about £100,000. He had a £50,000 bonus for the completion of the takeover. He was renting a luxury flat near Tower Bridge, which cost um, £12,500 a month to rent. Now, you know, sources say that this was a club flat and not only for Southall, but with this huge package that Southall had for himself and also uh, stuff that he had acquired for his, his coterie and advisors, Nima eventually gave up, he lost patience with how Southall was running it and then basically went on Instagram and started hammering Southall and attacking him for how he was he was running the club and then Southall responded with these angry statements on the Charlton Athletic website and we had this surreal week of very very public criticism all of it done online through the Charlton website and Tanoon's Instagram account and lawyers got involved and then eventually on Wednesday Nima decided to try to get rid of Southall and on Thursday, Nima's legal team showed up at the Valley with legal papers to get rid of Southall. Uh, they handed these to Charlton Athletic, um, I believe he's security officer, or sorry, club safety officer Mick Everett, who handed them to Southall. Southall tried to sack Everett. It all blew up, basically. And then a Charlton Athletic official had to call the police at 6.30 just to try to get an amicable, an amicable resolution to this. Now... Southall left the Valley on Thursday night. He said that he intended to return to work on Friday morning. Uh, I actually went to the Valley car park uh, to hang around the stadium on Friday morning, given that there wasn't... Uh, obviously, there, there, were, there were no other stories in football worth covering on Friday. Uh, so I stood in the Charlton car park from about 8, eight o'clock in the morning to about 11 o'clock in the morning, at which point it became clear that Southall was not going to return to work. Uh, his camp had been very quiet since Friday. And I think that I think I, mean, I might be wrong. I think the Southall regime is over. I mean, there was a there was a, a statement on the Charlton Athletic website on Friday afternoon, which read as if Nima had taken control. So it, it looks, and we might be wrong, but it looks as if Nima has won this war, and Nima is now in charge of Charlton Athletic. Jack, it, this sounds like an episode of Dream Team at Harchester United or something. It's absolutely extraordinary, especially for a club that. Uh, not so long ago was in the Premier League and and for a period doing doing quite well. Um, it's probably worth explaining for people listening. This isn't um, maybe a case of careful what you wish for with a previous owner because he he was also so disliked and and contentious and and it, that was how some of these fan groups sprung up in sort of protest at him. And equally, this is not like a Hicks and Gillette owner fallout at Liverpool because. Um, these two parties were put together as a similar situation at uh, Wickham Wanderers where the Kuigs, who have now taken over, uh, they worked with somebody to uh, run the club in the early days um, to uh, see their takeover through and they've now gone their separate ways. That's that's not entirely unheard of when some of these people come together um, almost by convenience. Yeah, completely. I think it's interesting seeing the emotions of Charlton fans over this because they were so they were so happy when Du Châtelet left because Du Châtelet had done such had done you know he'd been so unpopular with them over the course of his six years. He'd really starved the club of funds and optimism. There was no hope for the future, and so all this kind of machinery of anti Du Châtelet protest had been wound down in 
in the last few months. And then I found it came to light on, I think, when, Thursday of last week, that CARD, that's the Coalition Against Roland du Châtelet, were, had actually got the gang back together. And they were planning a big protest at the home game that was scheduled to be played against Queen's Park Rangers on Tuesday, Tuesday evening. Obviously, that game is not going ahead now, and there is seemingly no need for protest. And sorry, I should, I should be clear, that was a protest against Southall, not against Nima. Uh, the fans had decided that they were... Whatever they might think about Nima, and nobody knows really what his intentions are or if he's going to put up the money or whatever, but the fans did take against Southall after the recent revelations about spending. So, yeah, it does show what incredibly, you know, ownership is ownership is so difficult. Like, it's so hard to get good owners. And even though in the Premier League, I think we haven't seen that many very bad owners in the last, say, five to ten years, it's not that long ago that there was, you know, Venkies and everyone at Portsmouth. And clearly in the Championship... It's much easier for people with, you know, questionable intentions or abilities to take over a club. Your point about the um, fans siding with the new majority shareholders all the more extraordinary because the club was putting statements out backing Matt Southall. So it really is, as you call it, open warfare. One thing that I was quite confused by is how... um, this new majority shareholder can come in and then reading your excellent piece, it it explains that uh, him putting money in was never part of the plan for the first couple of months. I mean, what on earth's going on there? Yeah, so that again is one of the massive questions that Charlton fans have got. And that was always one of Southall's complaints about Nima is that Nima didn't put up money. So obviously Nima, you know, had to buy the club in the first instance, though that wouldn't have been very expensive because he didn't buy the stadium or the training ground, which is still owned by Roland du Châtelet. Um, Since then, the club has mainly been running off money it's already got through transfers, obviously, with their fantastic academy. They do make a fair bit of money through player trading. But there's not an awful lot of money left. And that was always one of the big questions asked of Southall, was how can you spend all this money when the club hasn't got that much to survive on? And even recently, Southall had to tell the players that uh, we probably have enough money to run without Nima's investments until December. Obviously, that situation, as we know, is now even more precarious because that will have been budgeting on Charlton having a certain number of home games, which are now in doubt. So, yeah, there's huge questions to be asked of Nima. He has said, or sorry, his side has said that it wasn't always the plan for him to invest a lot of money front up, but he's going to have to put some money in sometime because Charlton Athletic, you know, without home games, doesn't won't have the capacity to survive for that long. Well, is that, this is completely the wrong time for instability, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's just an extreme example of conversations that will be that will be had at Championship, League One, League Two clubs around the country. Which is, you know, they there are so much financial precariousness for those teams, and they all rely on getting however many thousands of people to the gates every other Saturday or Tuesday. If you take that money away from them, then how on earth are they going to cope? I mean, it's fine in the Premier League when you get so much in broadcast and commercial money that, I mean, the big Premier League clubs can actually do without match day revenue for a while. But, at the, you know, at the lower levels of football, the ones that aren't lucky enough to have you know, cash reserves or a generous benefactor or kind of financial stability, there are, you know, frankly, there are much more Charltons. If, if you look beneath the surface, there are far more Charltons, I think, than we would, than we would want to see. And lots of clubs are going to really, really struggle. Let's go back to a simpler time, shall we, Jack, for your favourite story that's free to read at the moment on The Athletic. It's the 94 Spurs side. So this is a story I did at the start of the season. It was, I think, a really interesting but rather brief time in English football, really. So this is Ozzy Ardiles' Spurs team. So Ozzy Ardiles took over Spurs' manager in 1993. Then the summer of 1994, 
Alan Sugar gave him this amazing spending spree where they signed Jurgen Klinsmann, Jika Popescu and Ili Dumitrescu. And for about four games, three or four games, they looked fantastic, like they could win win what was then the Premiership. And then it obviously all went wrong and Ardiles was sacked in October and replaced by Jerry Francis, who had a slightly different approach. And it was really, it was amazing at the time because this had literally never been done before. Like a Premier, an, an English team had never gone out and bought three superstars from all over Europe and not even from like, you know, countries like Denmark or Holland or the Republic of Ireland, which have traditionally provided players for English football, and tried to play in this incredibly expansive, aggressive, ex- attacking style, which Ardiles had learnt playing for the Argentina national team, winning the 1978 World Cup and all that. So it was a real, it was a real experiment in cosmopolitanism and can foreign football and foreign players work in England now obviously it didn't work but why I wanted to explore in this piece was one like why didn't it work but also was it the first step on the process which we're still seeing I mean this was only remember two years before Wenger showed up and Wenger when Arsene Wenger took over at Arsenal he had similar ideas of I want to play in a sort of more foreign style of play and I'm going to buy a handful of very good foreign players who I think can cut it over here and of course, Wenger was lucky enough that he inherited the kind of the Arsenal defence, and it was he had the kind of stable basis to do that experimentation. Whereas, unfortunately, two years beforehand at Tottenham, Ardiles didn't have that stable foundation, and it turned out that everything he tried to build was basically like you know, it's like a house of cards. There was there was no basis to it, and it all collapsed. Anything else you'd just like to point people in the direction of in your column? There's some good stuff in there. Only tease it though. Yeah, we broke the news uh, about Liverpool needing to sort of reopen their search for a head of um, medical because uh, the Andrew Massey, who was the, the doctor there, uh, has left for FIFA. That was widely reported. They had somebody lined up to replace him. Uh, it was all pretty much done and dusted, nearly over the line. And then that uh, medic from Arsenal uh, has changed his mind, is now staying at Arsenal. Real coup for them. Um, but it leaves Liverpool with a bit of a sticky situation, especially at a really important time with all the coronavirus um, situation going on. But they do have uh, an academy medic who has stepped up to the role on an interim basis, but they they need to get that sorted. Various other bits and bobs. Um, I, I, what should I pick out? Maybe Phil Neville walking around his local supermarket <laughs> on Sunday wearing white latex gloves. Um, but everybody's taking different precautions and full respect to them for that. Um, there's loads of good stuff in there, there this week. So, uh, yeah, take a look. Yes, you can subscribe to The Athletic to read in full the great articles from the likes of David and Matt and our team of writers from across The Athletic. There's obviously the free stuff up there as well that we've been talking about. There are going to be some amazing articles across The Athletic, even if there is no football uh, being played, including at the moment James Horncastle, who has sat down to watch Ed and Dzeko's best goals with Ed in Dzeko, uh, and Michael Cox has reached number nine in his iconic shirt number series. So they're all on The Athletic. Uh, just by listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. All of our podcasts are completely free. The ad-free versions are available to subscribers. Uh, that's it. We'll uh, be back next week. Thank you.